0: Hey, this is Russell Wilson. This is Joe Montana. This is Dak Prescott. Hey, this is Jason Kelsey. And you're listening to Rob Motti. Rob Motti. Rob Motti. Rob Motti. I
1: am Rob Motti. Welcome to the AP Pro Football Podcast. We had a ton of off-field news this week. I was in New York for the owners' meetings, and we'll get to what transpired there. Our guest on this episode, part two of the conversation with Colts owner Jim Ursay. He was a big part of the headlines at the meetings. Also, Jim's daughter, Kalen Jackson, the Colts vice chairman and co-owner, is here along with 2005 NFL MVP, Sean Alexander. On Tuesday in New York at the Conrad Hotel downtown, the league's owners met. There was plenty to discuss. Then at one point during a break, Jim Ursay and Colts executive Pete Ward, they came down to say hello. Since we had talked for a couple hours last week via Zoom, I wanted to chat with them in person and they came. They were nice enough to come down and, and talk to me. And then as we're talking and chatting over there, and you, you got the, this like little barricade set up in, in between the media and the owners and all that stuff, then a throng of the media comes over, and Jim is asked about Dan Snyder, and he said he sees merit to remove him as owner of the Washington Commanders. So, of course, that became big news, dominated the headlines uh, throughout the day. Now... Removing Snyder is going to require 24 votes from ownership. Commissioner Roger Goodell said he cautioned owners to wait for the investigation, the league's investigation to be completed before they come to a decision. Getting rid of him is unprecedented. There's a long, long way to go before that happens because Dan Snyder and his wife, Tanya, they want to maintain ownership of the Washington Commanders. So, there's a lot that's going to go on, and we're ways away from coming to any kind of conclusion. Let's kick off this week with part two of the conversation with Jim. Now, I've written a lot about mental health. I've interviewed many players who've talked openly about it. The Colts have been leading the charge on this for the last few years, with their Kicking the Stigma initiative, they've raised millions of dollars for this cause. Jim Ursay continues to purchase national TV ad time on various channels, even during games, and it features players and celebrities and talking about mental health, and he's done this for the past three years to raise awareness. So it's important to him, it's important to the organization, and he's openly discussed his personal battles I really appreciated the conversation, his willingness to open up to discuss what's going on in his life and how that's impacted what he and the team are doing now. Here's more with Jim Ursay. Jim, thank you for joining me on the AP Pro Football Podcast. Appreciate your time. Mental health has been, it's been a focal point in the world and the Colts are at the forefront. You guys are out there. You're helping people seek the help that they need with the Kicking the Stigma initiative you purchase national TV ad time. What does it mean to you for your franchise to be so actively involved?
0: You know, I have such a context with this, um, with my own life, with my own experience and um, but with our own players and with our own team, you know, with coaches, you know, I had a coach um, who snapped from losing so much and almost died on the field from the pressures of the game. And, and we are playing the Dolphins, and we had fumbled the game away in 1986, and, you know, all of a sudden the stadium was empty. You heard you heard this boom, and the head coach was down. We thought he was dead, you know, for sure, you know, and he had not had a heart attack and died, but he had just um, hyperventilated from the pressure, you know. Um, so you see, you know, you see all these things around you, but it's so prevalent in society, too. You know, you can't say – you know, that that our game is that way. You know, I've worked demolition construction when I was 19, 20 years old in the inner city of Chicago and saw the stress it put on guys that have been doing it for 25 years, you know, when you're destroying buildings from the inside with a jackhammer and, you know, lives are at stake sometime because the dangerous work. So I, I guess what I'm saying is you see, you know, the blend of all of life and the pressures of life and how it bears upon the the mental aspect of human beings. And unfortunately that gets pushed aside, um, you know, um, to the physical um, aspects. And, and um, even today in 2022, there's a lot of carried prejudices, so to speak, that, that, you know, people don't even intend to have, they don't even think they have them, you know, um, you know, uh, if, if, um, you know when our, you know our owner Bob McNair, God bless him, you know, passed away from cancer. It's like, ah, boy, you know, he fought such a brave fight. It's too bad he passed away, and you know, just you know, great sadness. You know when, you know, you know someone like myself, you know, has a battle, you know, with multiple surgeries and prescription drugs you know, then it's viewed, well, he has his demons and he just, you know, has to grow past that. He has to fight off his demons. You know, you don't say that, (laughs) you know, with someone that has cancer, he said, well, you know, two guys have pancreatic cancer. One guy gets better and one guy doesn't. You don't say, well, the other guy just couldn't fight off his demons. He just didn't have the character to beat the cancer. Like, yeah, I mean, it's insane. You know, it's really insane how insidious the stigma is in good people and people that are educated, people that think, you know, and people in our industry that think head coaches and general managers, different people, owners, they think they understand the stigma of the mental illness, but they don't, you know, and, uh, you know, because, you know, I was with Michael Phelps and we were both being honored in New York at the Plaza this last um, year ago, October. And, you know, in talking to him, um, you know, his, whole life and everyone based around his 18 gold medals or how many won as the greatest swimmer that ever lived, you know, but, but when he walked away from that arena, the depression and all the things that came with it left him a shell of a person, you know, and, and no one could imagine that that could happen to him. Um, but it does. And, and so, you know, we've really been um, on, a, on a strong effort to try to, raise awareness there, but also Rob with the insurance companies. I work with people all the time. They have a 13, 14 year old daughter, anorexic costs, you know, hundred thousand dollars or more to seek the proper treatment insurance companies say, you know, we're not paying, you know, we don't pay, you know, and I'm on a crusade to change that with insurance companies because they deny coverage for mental health all the time. And, and Mm. in, in this country, it's a sad state of affairs whenever I go to San Francisco, I go down to the inner city where the homeless are usually go to an AA meeting down there and, um, talk to, and see the homeless and be around them. And a lot of them are clear. eyed they're, you know, very, it's not drugs or alcohol with some of them. Some of it is some of it isn't some, of it's just, you know, a mental illness, you know, and then yeah. I was with a woman down there and she's looked at me with these clear blue eyes and said, um, Boy, don't go down by the ocean because there's these dark creatures and they drag you into the ocean and kill you. So be careful. And I just said, oh, really, I will have to pray about that's too bad. It's, it's disturbing to hear, you know, but you, you know, but but you see, you know, the, the, the level that's there and there's really no place for them to go. I mean, no, you know. Um, so. Uh, it's a great passion of mine and it certainly pertains with the league so much as well. Um, you know, as it does with the pressures of all jobs, um, you know, uh, um, where that can bear upon the stigma, but a lot of times these things are, are genetic, you know, inherited illnesses that, that come with people, you know, like bipolar alcoholism or depression. Um, so, uh, so it's it's really something I, I know myself, and my family are really passionate about as we as we move forward. And um, you know, there's just so much more work to be done.
1: Jim, how much does it help you relate to others going through this? Because as you've talked about, you've had your own personal issues that you've had to overcome. And I'm sure you still got to constantly stay on top of that. So how much does that help you relate to whether it's coaches, athletes, or just people in general, as they're going through mental health um, battles? Well,
0: it's a great question. and, And it really centers to, you know, my intention and what leads me to be so passionate with this cause. And you hit it on the head. It's like, I know what it's like to be a Hell's gates. I know what it's like to feel the bars of hell and and be in that darkness. You know, when I do this work, it's to try to save and help one person one at a time, not because of our brand, not because, you know, boy, it looks good for the family that they have a great charity. So none of that stuff. It's the empathy. And, and a tremendous compassion that you develop as a human being, because we're taught from what we go through, we can share our strength, hope, and experience to alleviate suffering for from from others. I mean, that's what we're given the power to have is now. And and they want to talk to you. They don't want to talk to someone who's never been staring at the eight ball and been right on the edge of the cliff and you know, close to death so many times and so alone in the dark. They want to talk to the people that are like them, that really understand, you know. Um, and that's how recovery started, for instance, in alcoholism is, you know, 1935, June 10th in, you know, Akron, Ohio. Um, you know, Bill Wilson went to a meeting and he was with the Washingtonians, a group that, tried to get people sober that broke apart because their structure just wasn't strong enough and it was too religious. So he still had about three months sober and wanted to drink. And he was at a business meeting at a hotel and there was a bar there and he almost couldn't take it anymore. So he called the rectory and called a priest and said, do you have any drunks in this town? And the priest was kind of surprised at the question, but said, yeah, our doctor actually, Dr. Bob, um, uh, he's, he's a drunk, he's a good man, but he's a town, he's kind of the drunk. So he went to see, you know, Bob that night where, where everything was founded with the 12 steps. And, you know, after about 30 minutes, Bob said, wait a minute, Bill, if you come here to try to help me stop drinking, you've come to the wrong house. And Bill looked at him and said, what? No, I, I didn't. Ca- I came here for me. I came here because I don't want to drink. Yeah, you know, I came here because I want to talk to someone that I can relate to. And so for the next eight hours, as the sun almost rose, these two realize what happens when two people with a shared experience get together because you trust, you have to have trust to get better. You have to trust and you can't always even trust doctors because they don't know. I know a lot of people in recovery, you know, they go, well, the doctor's not sober. I don't trust them. I mean, there's them and there's us, you know, there, there's you know, earthlings and then there's us. You know, I want to talk to someone, you know, who is like me because I don't trust anyone else because they don't understand. You know, and that's where the magic, I think, of all recovery happens, because, you know, when a 22-year-old healthy woman now goes talking to a 14- or 15-year-old girl died of anorexia, you know, she can say, you know, because what you're selling is hope. I mean, no one wants to hear anything. you got to have a solution and hope. And that's what we have. We don't come with just sympathy and say, "Oh, poor you." No, we say, "Hey, there's a way out of this. You know, there's a path to wellness, but it's not easy." And in this case, you know, interestingly enough, um, you have to, uh, you know, find a, a so-called, somewhat of a, a spiritual solution to combine with the physical and mental things you go through with with different treatments and. You know, it's hard because, like, with alcoholism, no one likes to treat it because there's no pill for it. I mean, doctors hate it. They always want to say someone comes in and they're, well, I'm depressed and I've been drinking a lot. Well, you've probably have been drinking a lot just because you're depressed. No, it's like a person who drinks a lot, it's an a antidepressant. And when they stop drinking, it's even worse. And, of course, they're depressed. The, you know, they don't have depression. They're an alcoholic. But the doctor doesn't know what to do. What There's no... There is no pill to prescribe. There is no, you know, there is nothing that they can do. And so they're in a bind. And, you know, what a strange thing to say that, well, actually, I think um, you should go to these meetings and, you know, through these meetings, millions and millions and millions of people have gotten. Well, Um, miraculously, there's no leader, you know, no one, it's just trusted servants, people gather in eighty different countries, they're gathering right now. There's no leader. There. How does this get held together? It's the biggest miracle that's ever happened in the world. I mean, you know, and it's not a cult, it's not you don't have to give any money. You know, you know, some person's there says, Hey, I got this friend, you know, he's about an hour away. You know, could you pick him up and bring him to the meeting tomorrow? The person doesn't even know him and he goes and picks him up. I mean, why? because it helps him or she get better because when we get out of ourselves, that's when it always happens. You know, you have to, you know, like St. Francis says, it's through self forgetting one finds. And, and the interesting thing that it's all opposite. It's like, you know, you have to get out of yourself and be of service for yourself to get better. You know, you, you have to, you know, all the things I was taught when, cause I was everything, Mr. Accomplishment, you know, squatting 700 pounds, playing football at SMU, running 26 mile marathons. I know what the 23 mile mark looked like, and I know what it meant to finish a race at 26 miles. I mean, I knew what it was like, you know, to take a few million and become a billionaire. I know what it's like to hold Lombardi Trophy. I know what it's like to do all those things, but they all worked against me in, in sobriety. It was the opposite. I, you know, they were my enemy my self will had to be abandoned. Because my self will was killing me. You know, it could not help me. You know, I the only way I could be helped was to surrender and give way to become teachable and and give way, you know, to some power greater than me. It doesn't you can call whatever power that is, it doesn't matter. It could be, you know, you know, it, it, it could be a doorknob. It doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, for instance, I know if you're in Atlanta, you know, the Atlanta, you know, police department is a power greater than you, <laughs> you know, if you don't think so. You know, try to see what happens if you challenge them, uh, you know, uh, what have you. But, you know, there's lots of, you know, and, and so it's um, you know, you, you hit on such a, a nerve there because um, you know, it's it's that experience that you have, but but there's many others that that everyone's been around it. You know, if they haven't had it You know, like I'm always amazed because, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic family and lost my brother and sister. My sister died in the car crash. My mother, my brother died from birth after, you know, trying to fight with a, um, you know, very bad um, deformity and everything. So I was the only one left. It was an alcoholic home and it was a crazy home and, you know, and and all those things. But I hear these stories. Well, I grew up on a farm and, you know, there's, you know, four or five kids and, You know, there was no alcohol in the house and we went to church on Sunday. It was such a nice, you know, I had five brothers and sisters, you know, you know, but see, you still find people that become sick in that setting. They become bipolar or alcoholic or what have you, even though they were raised in that perfect environment because it's a disease. Cancer doesn't distinguish from, you know, anything about how your upbringing was or anything. It's a genetic disease. If you have it you know, you're going to have to contend with it someday.
1: Jim, what do you say to men? Because for years we've been conditioned to feel like you got to be tough. You got to man up, you got to fight. And and we don't seek help. And slowly, more and more, you see players talking about it, getting help that they need, going to counseling. The whole kicking the stigma initiative, it kind of breaks that down to encourage to encourage people, not just men, but as you and I speak, I, I know I've always thought like, "Hey, I'm going to battle my own issues myself." How do you, what do you say to encourage God? You don't have to do it alone.
0: Well, that's the key. You know, the strongest man shows vulnerability. You know, and, and, and to be vulnerable is dangerous because we come from a primitive world. You know, you're you know the dinosaur is going to get me. I'm a caveman. Okay. I have to fight, I have to protect, I have to be strong. It's just like when the lion walks by in the forest, he's all puffed up, like, don't mess with me, you know? And and that's what you're taught, you know, particularly in a male, as a male in this country, you know, but it becomes the opposite to show strength. You know, men that cry are the strongest, men that show vulnerability are the strongest, men that compromise are the strongest, you know, because they know who they are. You know, and it's about, you know, uh, uh, you know, in recovery, on all the coins, it says, be true to thyself, you know, and and really to come into that real maturity of what a man really is now. what you know, because it used to be taught in the old tribal times and different, you know, cultures and, you know, with the Indians and stuff, you know, a man would be taught all the different things, how you treat a woman. You know, how you become a real man, how you, you know, fight and gather, how you do different things. But also, you know, how um, you develop sensitivities and, and, you know, you have to have humility and you have to have vulnerability. And, and um, you know, it's very hard because we're taught, you know, to do the opposite and, and we're taught to fight with a clenched fist. And, and, and um, that conditioning, you know, is... You know, everything, you know, on this path sometimes, you know, left is right, up is down, hot is, everything's reversed. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's like, you know, what you would think you would need to do from that strength and self-will and conquer and, and, and all those things, you know, that alpha male, just, you know, that, that aspect, it gets flipped, you know, and, um, but, you know, being around, um, a lot of strong guys many many strong guys the strongest guys in the world whether it was on football fields or lifting with some of the strongest men in the world in the power lifting days you know um you know there, there there were those that 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 you know that were the strongest and you respected the most that had that vulnerability you know i mean you know for us you know deforest buckner you know he sends me videos after a game you know 6 7 310 pounds destroying def- defensive alpha you know he's the T-Rex in the middle of the field now here he is in a video playing with his 3 year old son rolling on the ground with him you know and it's so touching because you know that's the strongest man you know the, the the gentlest one and and thankfully we have our players are that way so much i mean they're you know they're they're not human i mean they're they're so much bigger and stronger than anyone else. You know, even take someone in shape at, you know, 220 pounds, who goes to the gym, who's 40 years old, who's strong, That you know, fire. I mean, these guys, you know, they, they're just, you know, some of the big guys are just, you know, are, are, are just, I mean, they're so insanely bigger and stronger than everyone else. But to see their gentleness in children's hospitals, in all these different settings, and going out, and and um, and when they get vulnerable, and, and and all of a sudden, you know, are able to share their experience and cry and and to show vulnerability. You know, man, that is the strongest man because, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you try to hold on to things so hard until, you know, God says give it to me you know because in the end i mean you know at least from my point of view um you know god is 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 the giver of everything and and we're responsible for the effort god's responsible for the outcome and people don't like to talk specifically about spirituality because i say spirituality not religion because i'm not talking about religion you know you, you Jim you can talk it with me I'm a man of strong Christian faith and as you're saying I'm
1: thinking of philippians and 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 the bible verses do not be anxious about anything yes. but give it give it to me give it to the lord present your anxiety and your worries so
0: man feel no, I, appreciate, I appreciate that because you know I when I speak all the time no matter what event I'm at I don't shy away from that you know including with my other owners I, I talk about Nobility, and I talk about things, you know, we're, we're held, you know, there's a power in the universe greater than us, and it holds us to certain standards. And no matter who you are, I don't care if you're president of the United States, you can't go out of those lanes. You know, when you do, you know, there, there's trouble, and, and, um, you know, it's thy will, not my will and um you know i'm really serious about that because i really believe that's where you know our true peace of mind you know how do you become comfortable in your skin you know how do you have how do you be happy joyous and free you know we're all gonna have moments of being down and you know always you know sometimes we feel you know questions come up that that disturb us and we get off our equilibrium that's that's just being a natural being a human being but But, you know, we always find our way back, you to center, you know, through our our spiritual beliefs because, you know, look at, I mean, that's just the way I've always felt. I mean, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, you know, it's like, it's (laughs) dust to dust. And people say, what's it feel like to all those things? I don't own anything. I mean, are you serious? I mean, I borrow everything. It'll be someone else's someday very soon, you know? And, uh, you know, I've been just blessed enough. You know, a lot of us, you know, that 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 go through fatal illnesses like cancer or mental health issues, you know, alcoholism or depression or what have you. You know, we consider ourselves extra blessed because we kind of feel like that was what God gave us to really humble us and to make us, you know, you know, be be you know turning our will over to God and and to bring us about, you know, to really be in balance where we should be because, you know, you know, we see people all the time, you know, it's like, you know, in my world, I can't, there is no such thing as a justifiable resentment, you know, resentments will kill me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like making poison and drinking it myself. I can't, you know, maybe someone else can not me, you know, I can't have, I'm taught, you cannot have, there's no such thing as a justifiable resentment. You know, if something's wrong out there and you're feeling it, look inside, it's in you. God hasn't moved. God has been right there the whole time. We move, you know, and if something's not right, I mean, you know, wellness is an inside job. It's not, oh, if I just get this, or I just get this job, if I just get this much money, if I just become starting quarterback. No, I mean... It's an inside job, and 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 so you know there's a lot of lost sheep out there in the hills, and and there's a reason for that because you know people get born. There's no book on how to raise. They're raised in these various homes. They're mm-hmm. raised in a country where I mean it's hard being a human being. You know it, it's it's like in No Country for Old Men when the dad tells Tommy Lee Jones, you know this country's always been hard on people. You know. And, and it is life is that way you know and i think that um sometimes you know when we're blessed you know to to be given something that that humbles us and brings us you know you know brings us into submission to a place where where you know we you know the interesting thing is that's where you gain the world in all your strength you know is 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 by that surrender you know but you're taught no I don't know the word surrender never from me, you know, and then, then you, you know, then you learn, I mean, and, and that's like Muhammad Ali said, you know, if you're the same person at age 60, as you were as age 30, you've wasted 30 years, you know, because I mean, you know, I, I mean, that's what that's it's a great around. point.
2: You know, you hope
0: to see a maturation process process as you go forward and, and, you know, these mental illnesses out there and the things that are out there, um, And I think it's important, you know, Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins, just came out and talked about, you know, his 40th year of sobriety and said he was just a drunk shuffling around the streets of London trying to look for a theater job 40 years ago. And and now he's Sir Anthony Hopkins, one of the greatest respected actors in in the world. But but he does that because he's going to say, don't pick on that guy down on Skid Row. You can easily pick on him and try to say... Hey, I'm the same guy. You want to pick on someone, pick on me, you know, you know, because him and I, there's no difference, you know, we're the same person, you know, and, and he puts himself out there and, um, and, you know, you always have to, each illness is different, you know, um, with, you know, with, with, with alcoholic recovery, you know, there's certain things you're taught that. You know, you have to that are sacred that you try to protect when you talk about them. But but, um, you know, um, it's only to protect, you know, the the group that are trying to get sober. It's not to hide anything. But I mean, you can talk about a lot of things and a lot of people share their stories. And it means so much that way, you know. But I think, um, uh, you know, really, it's, it's something that to me, um, you know, right when the COVID was hitting, and, you know, my family and I talked and my daughters talked and the youngest one, you know, said, well, you know, how about this idea, you know, because uh, our family's been, you know, hit by this, you know, grandpa died and great grandpa died from alcoholism. And there's been, you know, other issues that come up in the family of depression on both sides of the family. So, you know, it, it, it was a, you know, a great idea. Um you know, to pursue it. And I know our passion, you know, I know we've just begun, you know, you know, when we do these commercials that go just not national, but international, even get to our troops overseas and stuff, you know, we know we have to get to people. I mean, why does it work Because Coca-Cola McDonald's doesn't because it works. You have to get the message out. You have to let people know, you know, every place they can, because, all of a sudden someone's in the basement with the gun and the commercial comes out it could change their life they might make a move to the phone instead of the gun you know you never quite know you know we always say never give up five minutes before the miracle ever don't ever give up because you hear the stories of people that have gotten better you know you think you're at the end of their rope and then they're going to tell you another 20 years and you're like that's impossible i mean How could anyone live through that? You know, and and it is possible. um, But, you know, sometimes, you know, everyone has different bottoms where you just never know, you know, Pete Townsend talked about one time he was a a heroin addict coming off the road in uh, eighty-one, and he went home for Christmas and, you know, had a wife, Peg, and, and, and two young daughters, and and it was Christmas time, and he said, you know, I'm not going to come home. And she's like, why? You're not coming home? I've been doing heroin, and I don't want to bring it around the kids. And, you know, I mean, he didn't feel worthy to come into his own house. And she said, no, Pete, you know, come, steal the silverware. It's yours. We want you home. Just come home. And he said, that moment of unconditional love just knocked him over just to have someone just say, you know, I love you for how you are. I'm not judging you. Just, you know, my love is here for you uh, under all conditions come home, you know, and and he said at that moment, you know, something changed in him and, and, you know, Pete's been sober a a good part of his life the last, uh, you know, 43 years since then. And, and, you know, so, you know, uh, of course it's hard. Some families, you know they they get to their wits end and they can't they can't stay on with the person sometimes because they feel it's going to destroy them so they Mm. separate with love i mean there's no magical way to go about that um but i think um you know you don't want to be um you know have any codependent aspects where you're enabling someone but you know whenever you can show that sort of unconditional love you know we go down to wheelers here at thanksgiving and serve dinners and stuff and you see people come in and and you know it's it's like we're way closer to uh, shuffling through that line than you think you know we think oh it could never be us you know we're above that but um you know i i think for me you know i look at people you know like you know howard hughes and elvis presley and You know and and people like that and realize that they never had a chance sadly i mean it's just like never had a chance because you could be you know i mean elvis had everything i mean he had wealth and fame he was the greatest star ever you know and, and and he was so empty because nothing can fill that empty hole you know from out there we keep trying to fill that hole fill that hole It'll never be filled, you know, Um, uh, and, um, you know, I know, you know, just just from, you know, talking about, you know, I mean, Ringo Starr, Richard S, Richard Starkey, his real name, Richard S, you know, he's been sober a long time, you know, you know, 40 years almost and, uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine used to say, you know, well, look at that. He was a fucking beetle and that didn't fill the hole and he was a beetle. And that wasn't enough. He still felt like a piece of shit, you know, and, and um, you know, it's, uh, you know, we have a funny saying and in, in recovery, sometimes I'm not much, but I'm all I think about, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it, it's like, you know, but, but it's all about, you know, it's not like, to me, it's not what you're, you know, we're all on a spiritual journey, you know, and, and you have spiritual challenges. I do everyone does and and it's the same thing it's about you know elevating and you know understanding we're not human beings having a spiritual experience we're spiritual beings having a human experience you know that's our essence spiritual you know the human part's just temporary you know and so there's a big difference and i think you know all of us um you know really that um uh, are on the journey you know, there, there's tons of, of times where we're challenged in our lives spiritually, you know, um, and uh, it, it doesn't mean that, for instance, there's even an illness is, is at foot. Um, but um, there's always that challenge because, you know, as a human being, you know, you know, that that's the nature of your imperfection, you know, and, and if you follow Christianity, you know, um, and you see, you know, God allowing His Son to come down and to go through those sorts of things, and there is a reason, Mel Gibson. You know, when he filmed Passion of Christ, he had a, that scene so long and brutal of carrying the cross because it showed the human suffering. It wanted to show the level of suffering. I mean, it's going on right now. There are nine billion people. You and I are talking in peace somewhere. In, in Africa or India or North Korea or pick your place. There's horrendous things you can guarantee going down right now. You know, it's tough, you know, and um, but, you know, you can't be overwhelmed uh, with, um, you know, uh, the fact that there is so much going on because that would, you know, diminish our you know purposes of service. You know, you have to say, you know, hey, we get them one at a time. You know, a teaspoon of inspiration can change the whole ocean's color, and and it, it's it's so true that you know the power of one and the power of just you know changing one at a time and making the world a better place it is so significant. And and you know we're so blessed in the National Football League because you know we bring them into the tent. We have the greatest theater that there is, certainly in this country. And 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 you know there's nothing like it, you know? So we have an opportunity, you know, with so many eyes and so much interest and our game is so great. And, and the theater of it is amazing, you know, but then we have a chance, you know, to help many causes and, and make many changes, you know, because of the interest in our game. So I think um, it's always been something I know, you um, that's so important in, in, in every, you know, place where you have such great blessings come your way, you know, to try to use those to better the world. Because to me, there's nothing, you know, that you can do more important than to make the world a better place. You know, to, in the end, that's that's um, really what it's about. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I never try to you know, rise above my humanity. You know, my feet are on the ground. I'm in this life. I, you know, I get mad, I get sad, I get glad and all those things because that's what we're meant to be. You know, we can't transcend all of that all the time. But certainly, um, you know, I make sure, you know, I'm aware of the spirituality part that's going on. And I think with stigma, um, you know, we've really helped because the problem is, you know, half the world's asleep. You know, they're just asleep. And, and, you know, you can't even reach someone who's asleep. All you're trying to do is wake them up. I mean, you know, George Carlin, at the end of his life, tried to change the world through his great humor and that love and compassion for humanity. It didn't work. So at the end, he became this angry narcissist. And everyone said, George, you're not an angry narcissist. Why are you doing it? And, And, you know, deep down, he said, because I've tried everything else and I can't wake them up. They're still, you know, they're still asleep. want to make one last point. What we're doing, you know, really as an organization, and I humbly say this, I'm not trying to toot our horn, but it's really unprecedented where a team, not the lead, but the team takes its own resources and says, I'm going into every market in the United States of America, even outside the country. And i was spending, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars on on commercials and in awareness stuff because, like, you know, Michael Phelpsing was out there briefly a little bit, and that was it. I mean, there's just nothing out there that you turn to, um, you know. Like you see these things with Sarah McLaughlin for abused animals. You know, some people see that commercial, remember it? But anyway, my only point is, is like. You know, I'm not saying it to tutor home. I, I'm just saying it because we want to engage people to say, "Oh, well, you know, we want to get out there and do that too." Like John Lennon always said, you know, if you don't think me sitting in a bag all day with Yoko ono, and if you don't think that's promoting peace, then you do something, you know, because like you know, you're you're trying to initiate, you know, the the people that are you know, um, you know the. To, 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 go after. And, and, you know, it's like that song, you know, the men that hold the highest places must be the ones to start to mold a new mentality closer to the heart. You know, it, it's like, you know, you want to initiate um, because I had to make sure. And I said the hell with that, you know, any problem with it, you know, well, can you go into the Buffalo bills market and have your new commercial that Peter Berg did? You know the great director. He did our last commercials from Lone Survivor and Patriots Day and Friday Night Lights. You know he did that commercial, and you know it's strange when you're you know in Buffalo or in Houston and you turn on this thing. It's not Colts centric. It it it's kick the stigma and NFL centric, but the Colts are featured in um, because no one does that. So people are saying, well, I don't know. Maybe someone will object to that with the league office or of the NFL I said, fine, let them object. Cause I don't think they will. That would be an absurd way to go. So in other words, I'm just saying, you know, the more we can, you know, instigate people to do more, that's what we want to do because there's not enough done out there as it is, uh, you know, and I emphasized one last time about the insurance companies because me being chairman of our legislative committee with the NFL I deal in Washington D.C. all the time, and I was just up on Capitol Hill this past uh, November, um, and actually my band played the steps of the, uh, the the Lincoln Memorial right on the lawn there um, at a concert, and I play. I was up on Capitol Hill speaking, you know, um, but but you know, you 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 try to um, uh, do what you can to raise your awareness with you know, the insurance company's shortcomings as well. But no, go ahead. Let's talk football. I always love talking about football uh, for sure.
1: Kalen Jackson is one of Jim Ursay's three daughters. She's the Indianapolis Colts vice chairman and owner and a big time mental health advocate. Here's my conversation with Kalen Jackson. Kaelin, thank you for joining me on the AP Pro Football Podcast. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, You're in a leadership role, and we're seeing more and more women grow in this sport. How encouraged are you that this is something that will no longer be talked about as something that's different but becomes the norm?
2: I'm so excited about it. I mean, I think, you know, we're obviously unique being 100% family run and kind of the Colts and, and football has been our life since I the day I was born, really. And the our whole lives since I was a baby have revolved around the NFL and the season. And so to see so many things changing, um, you know, that weren't this way when I was little, you know, you wouldn't see females in the locker room and, you, you know, you wouldn't see female refs or female coaches or even you know, female medical staff. And so to see the shift, um, even especially I would say heavily increased in the last, you know, five years even is super exciting. And, you know, being from a family of three girls and always being told, you know, you belong here and, you know, your opinion about this matters. We were, you know, definitely had a blessing to have a very passionate girl, dad, as they say.
1: <laughs> was it a given for you, being that your your dad owned a team? Was it a given for you and your sisters to be involved, or did you have that choice? Hey, you can do whatever you want, and and this opportunity is here for you.
2: Yeah, it was definitely more that um, we were never ever, you know, forced to want to do it, and it was very much. Um, presented to us in the way that you should definitely pursue all the things that interest you and make sure that this is actually what you want to do, you know, not just something that is comfortable and you're used to because it's been around you, you know, so much. But I think that, um, you know, as I got older, I, I feel like I didn't fully know until I I started after college. Like, I mean, I think which sounds funny to say, because I went to college and, and majored in sport marketing and management. So obviously, I thought that's where I wanted to go. But until you're actually doing it day to day and really, um, really fully seeing the ins and outs of all of it, um, I felt like that's when I really knew this is what I love to do. And and this is definitely where I'm supposed to be. I think, you know, and when we were younger, we definitely always worked in community, like events and things like that it was kind of our first introduction into football other than obviously games. Um, and so that's kind of, I guess, ironic of where I landed, you know, overseeing our family giving strategy and and community philosophy is my main role day to day, along with obviously being involved in general operations and having my hands in a lot of different um, se- sectors of the business. But that's my main day to day role. And, and it's kind of funny, because that's kind of where I first was introduced to what the business is outside of what you see on the field. And so I think it was really natural for us. My dad always made a point to say, you know, this is not something that you have to do. And in fact, it was a blessing that we had a dad that supported us in that way. And that, and that, you know, we never take for granted that this really is an opportunity that was handed to us. Um, And we don't take that for granted. And in fact, we feel that we need to prove ourselves maybe 10 times more than anybody else that we do belong here. And, and that, we do care about this business and and we've really worked hard to understand all the ins and outs of it.
1: What's it like for you, Kalen, to be part of the NFL owners meetings? Because obviously there aren't, an, there aren't a lot of women in that room, but the voice, to have your voice heard is so important.
2: I remember, you know, the first time I was allowed to be in the room because um, that was something like as much as he involved, my dad involved us in all conversations and, you know, a lot of really important, you know, confidential conversations over the years, being in that room is different. You know, it, it's a, we had to wait until a certain age until you deemed it, you know, appropriate for us to be in that room. And um, so it was definitely a memorable moment. But I think anytime I'm in that room, it's a super, super impactful moment for me, because, you know, you think of all the people that that have sat in that room over the years and, and, um just the amazing business people that are in that room the amazing minds that are in that room and uh, my dad has definitely made a point to to tell us how important that is and what a big deal that is and and although we are um outnumbered as as in terms of female to males it has grown you know over the years and you see more females you know coming in um and and making a stand um i guess for females and i think that that's obviously really encouraging to see. And, you know, people ask all the time if we've ever felt, you know, treated differently by any means. And I can say that, you know, in that room and, and, and in anything that we've done with the league, we've always felt, you know, respected and, and, and heard.
1: You and I, Kellen spoke about kicking the stigma back in January. How have you grown that initiative over the past years and in, in the 10 months since we last connected?
2: Yeah, I, I, so much. And I was thinking that I couldn't remember exactly what month we had had spoken in. And I feel like every month there's something new and exciting that we're doing. But I think the biggest thing is we finally were able to have our first in-person fundraising event, um, in September. And we, you know, we raised uh, a total of 1.6 million. Um, and I guess since then too, we've had our second round of grant recipients. Um, awarded and so in total we have uh 38 grant recipients um equating to about four point one million dollars distributed um and mainly they're Indiana local nonprofits but there's some national nonprofits in there as well like Project Healthy Minds and Bring Change to Mind are a couple that um some some people might recognize. Um but we're just we're just so proud about the momentum and that it's continuing, you know, and that that we really are I guess being true to our word that we weren't going to let up any, on this and that we are continuing to push this messaging forward and putting our funds and voice behind it. And that's not going to be stopping anytime soon. Um, and we have to date about close, a little over $17 million have been committed to this, whether that be personal donations, awareness, PSA pieces, or fundraising. Um, and that's just since. The spring of 2020. So we feel really proud of what we've been, been able to accomplish so far. But really, truly, this is just the beginning. We feel like um, we kind of are starting to get our ducks in a row, if you will, and, and really, you know, connecting with the right people, being strategic about where our funds are going to actually impact real structural change um, in this broken system of, of mental health. Sometimes
1: moms may get lost in the shuffle, Kalen. You're trying to take care of kids. You're trying to do whatever you have going on. And, and if you're working at the same time and you're busy, that you may overlook your own personal mental health. How important is it f- for moms, especially, to make sure they're they're taking that time that they need?
2: A hundred percent. Well, and I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and um, I know all too well, you know, my personal struggles with anxieties over the year and, and then having kids, you know, that adds on a whole nother level. Um, I was actually just talking to Jay Glazer the other day on his podcast. And we were talking about, you know, how ironically, I felt maybe the most calm when I was pregnant. And I think it's just because he kind of put it as like, maybe serving something bigger than myself. But I think the point is, like, when the baby was here, and after, you know, whether you have postpartum depression severely, or even just what they kind of label as the baby blues, I think everybody experiences that isolation and kind of loneliness at first at times and not knowing how to handle that. And I, I think you're so right in the sense that, you know, a mom might be doing that managing the house and working um, and feels like I can tell you that my mental health did take the back burner sometimes, like when they were new. And, and that can be really hard because um, you just have, there's only so much time in a day and, and you feel so overwhelmed. So I think that is definitely something that that we want to dig into more in depth. You know, there's so many sectors of mental health and I think female and specifically like postpartum mental health is huge. And actually one of our grant recipients this year um, is going toward uh, postpartum, the postpartum network. And helping with that. Um, but I think it's interesting because my dad even will tell you. I remember it was probably two years ago. I think they, there was a, a study done and, and there was getting a lot of publicity about postpartum. And he texted me and he had said, Did you or your sisters ever feel this way? And it was like one of those moments where he thought, I don't know if I ever asked them that. You know, like I, I think they seemed fine, but I, I never asked them that. And I remember thinking so much about it because kicking the stigma had started at that point and i think that's the point behind any you know platform that's able to shine a light on these issues is it makes people stop and think like do i need to check on my loved one do i need to check on you know and we talk about everything under the sun like we're a very open book family and i think he had this moment of like gosh i never i didn't think to ask them that like how did i you know and so i think that um it really relates to, you know, what we're trying to do here is, is make people, you know, check on their loved ones and, and realize the impacts that they can have, even if it's not a huge donation or, or anything like that. You can have an impact on your community and your family and your friends by just simply, you know, asking someone if they're okay or even being vulnerable yourself and, and realizing that that might open a door for somebody to, to get help
1: mental health is obviously very personal to your family with your dad it's well documented he's been open and spoken about his issues that he's had to overcome having that personal attachment to this kind th- this issue how much does that kind of drive you in the kicking the stigma initiative
2: oh i mean it's it's definitely at the core of it for sure and i think that that's you know in a way i think why it's been so well-received and, and, um, connected with so many people because it is coming from a lived experience. It's coming from a genuine place of understanding, um, and, and having lived that, those dark moments, having lived that and, you know, or like in my case, I always say, you know, I, I have anxiety. I didn't, I didn't have anxiety. It's still part of my day-to-day life. And so I think it enables us to really connect in a genuine way, um, with people on this and, I think that that's part of why it's been so well-received. Kelly, well, thank you
1: so much for your time. Colts.com uh, is where people can go to get more information on the Kicking the Stigma I- initiative. Uh, I know you guys have uh, links on there if, if folks want to donate, if they want to get involved, and, and just a list of resources, which I think is really cool because sometimes people, they, they need they, they don't know where to go. They don't know where to turn. So right there, there's a list of resources
2: hundred percent. Yeah. Colts.com slash KTS. You can find all of that information, ways to donate, even information about what we've done so far and, and what we'll continue to do. And we're excited because, uh, last year was our first year. We had, um, a game dedicated to mental health awareness. And this year we will be doing that again on our Monday night primetime game versus Steelers on November 28th. And we'll be having our players wear shirts again and, and really using that again as a, uh, opportunity to use our platform to spread mental health awareness.
1: Wow. That's awesome. I didn't realize that about the game. I'm going to try and come out for that one. So thanks for sharing.
2: Yeah. Well, and thank you for shining a light on us as always.
1: Sean Alexander was the NFL MVP in 2005 when he helped the Seattle Seahawks reach the Super Bowl. Sean had 28 touchdowns that season, 27 on the ground. He ran for 1,880 yards. He was inducted into the Seahawks Ring of Honor last week. Sean has developed a professional leadership program for NFL and college athletes. Here's Sean Alexander. Sean, great to have you on again. And congratulations, the Ring of Honor with the Seattle Seahawks. It's such a special recognition. What does it mean to you?
3: Uh, You know, it's really special. I I think, um, you know, when you were little and you'd go to like the Cincinnati Bengals games and you would see like Kenny Anderson, you know, you know, up in the the Raptors or Anthony Munoz, you know, you'd be like, okay, these are like the legends of the game. And I remember them playing in the Bowl in sixth grade and stuff like that. And you, you would just think like, oh, this is longevity. They're going to point, people are going to point to, oh man, tell me this about that guy. And so, so I think that, um, it's a part of what I love about football, um, I get to be a part of creating great moments in other people's lives because they'll come up to me still today. Hey, I was at that game or I remember watching this game when I was um little and, and so now when people go into the stadium they can't help but look up and say, "Hey, tell me about that guy." And uh and uh and I'll be one of those people that that people ask that question about.
1: How often do you hear about the five touchdowns in the first half game?
3: <laughs> I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot. You know, um, it was just special. You know what I mean? That that night was special. Um, you know, that was our second game in the stadium. And so, so you know, anytime you get to go set a standard that that's high, um, it uh, it's just special, you know, Sunday night football.
1: That stadium and the 12s, it's just it's different. I, I've been to more than half the stadiums around the NFL, haven't made my way yet to Seattle, and it's on my list. I need to get there. But what what was that environment like to play there to have them rooting for you instead of against you?
3: Yeah, you know when you when you are in a culture, you know I, I come from a high school, Boone County High School in Florence, Kentucky, and we were ranked nationally. You know, I mean, a little small town, ten thousand people at the time, um, and we'd have everybody at the game. It'd be like nine thousand people at the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. So, you know, so when you come from that to Alabama, which everybody understands what 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 that means to come to Seattle. And, you know, I got there in 2000 and I think it was a 25th year. I think there was three playoff seasons. You know, I mean? it wasn't a lot. They were they were known to be eight and eight or worse and um, to turn and be a part of the the foundational bricks to make them what they are now. Like people all believe that when you go to Seattle, it's going to be the hardest game in your life. And that's not how it was when I got there. So there's a a sense of great pride, a a sense of of great accomplishment when uh, you look at what the Seahawks are now, even with a team that would be this year, quote unquote, not as good, um, but uh, still hard to beat at home. Um, That's that's what it becomes really special. And not only that, you know, us winning uh, so much, you know, playoffs five years in a row, winning division four those uh, for those years in a row. all that is makes it really, really special.
1: Try so how closely do you watch today's NFL? Do you stay up to date week to week? Are you watching games all weekend? Uh, wh- what is that like for you?
3: Yeah, you know, I I don't watch um, the games themselves. I might watch Seattle, but I'm more watching people. You know, I've over my last uh, few decades, I've grown and have some great relationships with several of the guys and. And helping mentor them and and so that's been a part of of the uh you know how I do football, so now I'm more watching people and not necessarily watching uh just a specific team
1: well, tell me a little bit about that because you just created the professional leadership program and and you're working with different athletes in the nFL you're working with guys in the college level uh Tell me what you're doing there and what you're hoping to accomplish.
3: Yeah, you know, it's it's seventy-eight percent are broke two years after they retire. Eighty percent are usually divorced, separated in unhealthy remarriages. Um, you would see that and you hear you'd think, gosh, this brotherhood, the NFL is is so marvelous to be a part of. But yet these numbers, they're not everything, but they definitely show like success on the field is not turning into success off the field. And and I just wanted to be a part of the solution. And so, um, you know, it was about 10 years ago. I, I'd already started it for 10 years with just different players, some of the guys coming out of Bama, different um, different uh, universities, and then, of course, different teams and guys I knew. But when I retired, Roger Goodell, out of all the people, he had just became the commissioner. He was like, yeah, what are you doing now? And I said, yeah, I kind of walk some guys through what I call the five Fs. I teach them all how to mash the five Fs, how to handle fame, family, friendships, uh, finances in their future. And, uh, we just kind of teach them how to learn how to take leadership over their own life and make their own decisions. And what does it really mean to have an identity? And what is your identity? What's your why and how? And, and how do you, what's your ecosystem? How, uh, your friends and people around you, whether it's a coach or a business partner or, uh, uh an, an assistant or even a, a an agent, all those people are part of your um, ecosystem. What do you lead? You know, I mean, are you making decisions? Are you guys partnering together? And and so when you start walking guys through this kind of uh, Mm -hmm. conversation, you start to let them learn how to become healthy in their own skin, knowing Mm -hmm. that they're going to make decisions that are most beneficial for them and their family and their close ones. And um, it's been really amazing, uh, you know, stirring them over to thinking about what happens in the future when we when we retire. What do we want 20 years, 30 years, 50 years to look like? What do we want to look like when we die? You know what I mean? What are we leaving the legacy that we're going to leave? You know, where are we going to go? Is it going to be heaven? <laughs> you know, all those decisions. It's just a good, healthy conversation for people to go and take ownership, because I believe that if you give people the tools, then they're going to actually make some healthy decisions. And so, so that's what it's been about. And so just recently I've dipped even in some of the high school, all American type kids and, um, you know, being very selective about that because, you know, with the NIL. You've got a lot of kids just really struggling here. They have all this talent in the world and, and now they're 16, 17, 18 trying to make decisions for their parents. And it's a little unfortunate, but at the same time, it's a great responsibility and a great opportunity. So helping even those kids from high school, um, to, to the best players in the, in the country, uh, in the world right now, um, you know, just helping them walk through and say, man, you've got all the goods to be the master of those five F's. So go do them well. And uh and it's it's been really um enjoyable for me to awaken the
1: God given identity and talents and uh and calling on people's lives. Who helps you, Sean, along the way to be able to put you in this position where now you can give back, you can put this together and help people master their five F's?
3: Yeah, you know what? I was a person, I was a I was a sponge for knowledge. I was a sponge for wisdom. I believed in being a, uh, you know, as the Bible would say, we call you a true son. Otherwise, I could learn from someone where they could say, man, I can trust this young man like a son. And so I learned from, you know, some of the smartest businessmen in the country. I learned from some of the greatest um philo- philanthropists in, uh, in the country. Some of the great pastors in the country, some of the great just good old plain dads in the country. I would watch them. I'd ask questions. You know, what I mean, I had stumped Mitchell as a running back coach. So I think he's still the running back whisper. He's at the Cleveland Browns now. He was in. He had he had With a big that, old gray beard. <laughs> yeah, you know, every goes he had that. So I just I just found guys that did stuff well, and I made myself teachable. And uh and it was uh and it just always worked. And I just realized like if there's
1: some other young men that want to learn, I can give the best I got. I mean, I'm sure you would look at the five F's as all equally important, right, Sean? But is there is there one that uh you feel strongly about? Like you can't master this without that or, or however you look at it?
3: Well, I just think everybody has a process, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm okay with that. I just think that, you know, learning your identity, that first one is fame. Fame is really about identity, um, you know. And once you learn how to learn who you are and what you're really about, you know, I believe God has given everybody amazing gifts. Like God's given everybody um, amazing character and identity. And once they learn that, um, usually... What kind of family they want and the, the, the environment they want, what kind of friends they want, how they're going to spend their finances, how they're going to make money. Um, the plans for the future will start to make sense when you get your identity set. And so uh, I, I have chosen to put my identity in Christ. And so, so as soon as I understood that Jesus' plan for me was perfect and his plan for everybody. Is it the same place? Um, it won't look the same as anybody else's. And I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with it, not um I, I try to tell everybody, let's not compare, let's compete, right? And so comparing means that I'm only doing good if if I'm beating you. Competing means is I'm actually gonna do the best I got. And if you're the one that's next to me, then we're running against each other, but you're not the focus. It's really what's the gifts are inside of me. And and so all of that comes back to identity, and that's all is about how do you master fame. And fame only works if you know, you know, if you it, being talked about only works if you know who you are. Otherwise, you'll mess it up one way or the other. And both both those things, if
1: you don't know who you are, they go bad places very quickly. You think it's a little harder, Sean, now to master fame than maybe even when you played, which obviously is not all that long ago, but it's a different world, a different era. Look at social media now and, and players can interact directly with fans on on all of these various platforms and then they can hear it back from fans. They can get the criticism and there's, it's just so different over the, from two decades ago to last decade to now, does it make it harder for players to master fame?
3: I wouldn't say it's harder. I would just say that you, you have to learn who you are earlier. You know what I mean? Like they always say, say, Oh, when you grow up, well, the more access you have to information, the more access you have to um, uh, the rest of the world, you have to mature and set some really healthy boundaries at an earlier age. You know, the high school kid can't just be free and loose and have conversations with everybody because literally, um, you know, I think of the, the uh Monte Teo, you know, what I mean, he, yeah. a good little boy playing football and he's thinking he's having a conversation with a girl and it's, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh You know, uh, fishing uh, or whatever. Yeah, it's fish, like fish, fish hooked or whatever it's called, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like, I would have never even thought about that. You know, I, I remember my, you know, my two buddies that was Mr. West Virginia, Mr. Ohio, that's Randy Moss and Charles Woodson. We're going to the same high school games. And we all thought it was hilarious. We're 16, 17, 18 years old. we have our own lives, mine in Kentucky, Charles in Ohio, Randy's in West Virginia. And we'd see each other at the games. We're like, oh yeah, hey. And all the coaches would say, yeah, hey, man, if I get you guys here, we're going to win national championships. Everywhere we went, we just happened to go to the biggest games together. And well well, there was no cell phone. It was one like, "Hey, hey Charles, where are you gonna go? already? I mean, where are you go? We just find out when we're at the next place. Oh, you're here again. Oh, this is great, you know, and so all those things are are just at another level, you know what I mean, like um, you know so so the internet and all those all the things that that gives you access, you know you just gotta have greater boundaries if you're a younger person, and then, of course, it gets bigger and bigger. you go to college, I remember um you know uh somebody asked me about followers uh, you know the, a, a player at alabama and uh and this is this is back uh, back when i just retired He says, man, we got to get you some followers, man. And I said, Yeah. So maybe one day I could be a football superstar and win the MVP and have millions of dollars and millions of people watch me play in the Super Bowl. And he's like, Are you making fun of me? I'm like, Yes, what are we talking about here? (laughs) You know, like like handle fame better. Like, you know, followers is not what makes you makes you the guy. You know what I mean? Like being the guy is the guy, you know. And so it can sway you to make you believe something about yourself that's not reality. And um and so that's so that's a part of learning how to master fame is getting uh, to understand that, like other people's talk about you is not really moving you off of the real plan that you have and and the why that you do everything.
1: What would you say about future? Because so many guys, mm-hmm. when they transition from the league, as you said earlier, and you gave several statistics about the troubles and uh, there's a void that needs to be filled clearly it seems like you made a smooth transition because you have a great foundation, but what is the most important part of being able to master your future? You know, I think it's having an idea
3: of where the, where it is. Like, here's the cool thing. We make lots of money. We have lots of opportunity for connections Um you know, I ain't saying everybody gets to pick the girl of their dreams like I did, but you, but you have lots of opportunity, right? And you, you have an idea saying like, "Hey, here's the plan that I have. Here's here's what the light at the end of the tunnel gets to look like." And we get a great saying with that that is. And what happens is, is People they fail to plan what that is, and um, and uh, and so you you just gotta plan it out. Like there's there's nothing wrong with saying, "Hey, I would love to see this happen. Let me go take the steps I need to make this happen." And if some things happen that shifted, then you're like, oh, "Okay, well, let me shift with that." But to not have any plan, um, it's almost foolish because you can actually. You actually can order some some great some great steps for your future, and so I really get to help challenge guys that and actually open their eyes to that because a lot of guys don't even think like that. Well, well, what kind of house do you want to live in, and what kind of wife? And how many kids do you want to have? And and what is this future going to look like and what kind of impact do you want to have in your community you know what i mean and i i partner with a a great group of people um all over the country uh with a partnership with Stand together and and they're just a bunch of successful businessmen and women and philanthropic leaders all over this country and i love to sit there and have conversations about how can we impact the world for good how can we how can we greater people's goods that they're already doing it's a lot of fun but like that was a part of my why i wanted to to awaken the god given talent and calling in people and so so for me that works well this is what i'm doing with a lot of guys hey look at your life what do you want this thing to look like well let's go meet those people now and they know you're busy playing ball but as soon as you're done you've already got the relationships Let's go get let's go do it from there. And so so that's a lot a lot of the the future planning that I, I do with them is what kind of legacy we want to live and what do we want to do right when we step off the field. Can we already be ready for it?
1: Well, Sean, the professional leadership program uh, you've created sounds like a phenomenal idea and one that's much needed for for athletes and, and for people. So I appreciate you spending some time with me sharing a little bit about it. And, again, congratulations on that Seahawks ring of honor, man. Hey, thank you, man. All right. Welcome back to the 8P Pro Football Podcast. It's that portion of the episode where we give our pro picks. Our four-pack is rolling, 14-2 over the last four weeks. Let's keep it going. We'll start with a game where the line influenced the selection. We've done well with these. The 5-1 Giants, they're getting no respect after beating Green Bay and Baltimore in consecutive games. They're three-point underdogs in Jacksonville against the Jaguars team that has lost three in a row. That line says Jags, Jacksonville, 22-17. Next, the Buccaneers are 10.5-point favorites over Carolina. Tampa Bay is struggling. Tom Brady is not happy but the Panthers are a terrible football team. They got third-string quarterback P.J. Walker making his second straight start. The Buccaneers are due for a blowout win. Bucks 34-13. For my upset special, the Colts are two-and-a-half-point underdogs at Tennessee looking to avoid being swept by the Titans in a season series for the second straight year. Matt Ryan led a comeback in Denver two weeks ago. He had a big game and an impressive comeback last week against Jacksonville. He's found the rhythm in the offense. Colts 24 23. My best bet is Kansas City coming off a home loss to Buffalo, going on the road to face San Francisco. The Chiefs are three point road favorites. They'll bounce back with Patrick Mahomes leading the way. Chiefs 29 20. For more insight and predictions on every game, check out Pro Picks on APNews.com. Time for some final thoughts. I was in New York this week, and the league reiterated at the league meetings that it will continue to protect quarterbacks. Roughing the passer penalties are down. So despite people having issues with the two disputed calls in week five, the NFL does not see a problem. Troy Vincent, a league executive, he said the discussions with the owners were spirited, and we know that the Rams have indicated that they plan to propose making roughing calls reviewable but don't expect that to happen, and Rich McKay from the competition committee certainly would not be in favor of it, as he said this week. That's it for this week. Thank you to Jim Ursay, Kellen Jackson, and Sean Alexander, and thank you for listening. Please be sure to download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, check out my colleague, Ralph Russo, and his AP Top 25 college football podcast. Until next week, I'm Rob Motti, reminding you make a difference. Be a blessing.